So this morning as we studied together, uh, a very wise preacher once said that uh, when the Word of God is proclaimed, uh, there's a group of people that listen that say amen, and there's a group that say ouch. And, and, so, and sometimes you fall in the middle. And so you'll notice that this morning that there's no sermon notes in your, in your bulletin there, and that's by intention by me. Uh, because I need your undivided attention this morning as we study together. So if you would, please keep your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 5 as we're studying together. So when I was transitioning from being a lay pastor at a small church in Carson City, Nevada to full-time vocational ministry in the spring of 2011, uh, the housing market was starting to bottom out. Right, And uh, I faced a dilemma. So we owned our house in Dayton, Nevada. And we were taking this ministry position in Reno, Nevada, over an hour away from where we were. But we felt like we needed to live in the community where we were serving. But at that time, there was no way we were going to be able to sell our home. We were upside down. Um, I had enough money for a short amount of time to pay rent on a home in Reno and also to pay the mortgage on that house. But pretty soon the savings started to run out and we needed to decide what to do next. And so I called the bank, uh, let them know that we were making our last payment. And, and they knew our situation mostly because it wasn't any different than anybody else's situation at that particular uh, time. But we hadn't missed a payment and so they offered to modify our mortgage. And so I said, great. I still can't pay you, but great. Thank you. So we went ahead and we did all the paperwork. Uh, and um, I called my dad to let him know what was going on because my dad and I are tight. We share everything together. Uh, when he heard the news about all this, he said, well, this could actually work out, which is a common phrase by my dad, by the way. Um, yeah, he says, I actually need a place to live closer to Carson City because he was living much further out. And he said, let me talk to Susan, but um, uh, what, if, what if we took over the payments on the house and we lived there? And we did it. And I was relieved of the burden of that debt, and my father asked for nothing in return. The point of telling you that story was, here's what my dad did. He essentially said, I'm going to absorb the debt so that yours is canceled. And for me, what that brought for me was freedom. And knowing my dad and um, years of acts just like this, I know why he did it. He did it because family matters that much and taking care of family matters that much to him. As we continue in the story of Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, we're going to see something similar happening here from a different trajectory. We've seen the people of God in this upward trajectory toward this God-shaped vision that Nehemiah has been projecting for them. In Nehemiah chapter 2, the people unite under the leadership and vision of Nehemiah that God has put on his heart with this unified refrain that is the title of our series. Uh, they said, we will rise up and build. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, we see the people true to their commitment with this detailed account of what is summarized in Nehemiah 2.18, that they strengthened their hand for the work. They were ready to go. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see what seems to be a unified people ready to work and fight at the same time against the opposition to the work that God is doing. 
So overall, what we've seen so far is a, a picture painted of unity. But before the paint can even dry on that picture of unity, a new picture is starting to emerge in Nehemiah chapter 5. There is an underlying issue that surfaces that poses a threat to God's intended image of his people. The story starts to take a stark turn. And in Nehemiah 5.1, this scene begins with the phrase, Now there arose a great outcry. There's a fracture in the unity of the people. An outcry from the people of Israel against the nobility, uh, who I'm going to refer to as the influencers, These are the influencers because before Nehemiah arrives, they held all of the cards in the community. They had the most money, the most influence in the community and in the neighboring provinces. And what we're going to see in this passage is they had a high level of control over the remnant in Israel. So that we can get the full weight of what exactly this means and that this outcry simply wasn't a bunch of people who were agitated and whining or inconvenienced. This is going to be language that is going to be very familiar to the Israelite community because it's a word that comes from their own people's very important history. We've seen this word outcry before in Israel's history. We actually see it in Genesis chapter 19, verse 13. For we are about to destroy this place, referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, Because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that he has sent us to destroy it. That's how big this outcry is in Nehemiah chapter 5. That they would liken it to a story in which Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Seemingly we've gone from 0 to 60 rather quickly moving from unity to disunity. Well, there's an idiom that's probably familiar to most and it's appropriate here. Where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And in the case of Nehemiah chapter 5, what we are seeing is we're starting to see the fire emerge. But where was the smoke? How could they have come to this point and Nehemiah not see it coming? Well, if we go back a page or two in Nehemiah chapter 3, in this chapter what we saw was a unified people Unified in purpose, doing the work that God had called them to do and strengthening their hands for the work. But there's a small crack that almost ends up being a footnote in the unity that they have. And it emerges, and we see it now playing itself out in Nehemiah chapter 5. In Nehemiah 5, we see the fire. In Nehemiah 3, 5, we see the smoke. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. The same people that this outcry is against, according to Nehemiah 5, 5, 6, the influencers, these are the same people that refuse to participate in the rebuilding of the wall. But even more than that, if we look ahead to Nehemiah 6, 17, we're even going to get a little more insight. In Nehemiah 6, 17, we see this. Moreover, In those days, the nobles of Judah, the same people, sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah, from Tobiah, letters came to them. If you recognize that name, Tobiah, this is the same Tobiah who has been coming against the work of God along with Sanballat and Geshem. 
Now, because Nehemiah 6, 15 through 19 is a summary of what has happened from the beginning to the end of building the wall, when Nehemiah says, in those days, in Nehemiah 6, 17, essentially what he is saying is that from the beginning of the work, these influencers have been going behind Nehemiah's back and they have been communicating with Tobiah regarding the work to be done. In short, they've been gossips. They've been selfish, and in the case of today's passage, they are holding the people captive with debts hanging over their heads. And because of that, the progress that God wants to make through Nehemiah and the work of the remnant is now being hindered. Evidently, in Judah, they didn't just have a wall problem. They had a people problem, but even more than that, they had a family problem a family that was not taking care of each other. The influencers, the ones who should have been taking care of the family, were holding debts over the family. You can hear this in the desperate appeal of the people to their brothers in Nehemiah 5.5. As they're crying out with this great outcry, they say, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. They're crying out to each other as family. In essence, they are saying, these people who should be caring for us, aren't we family? The influencers had forgotten that they had a role in taking care of the family. But now, family has devolved in this passage into classes where you have these influencers, this small but powerful group holding debts and power over the rest of the community. And as a result, you have this larger but weaker, less influential group suffering major physical and financial needs. And the progress that God had been making through Nehemiah with the people is now in jeopardy. The food supply had almost come to a halt The influencers are now collecting on their debts and demanding their portion and collecting interest. And now they are even accepting their brothers and sisters from the remnant as payment and selling them into slavery for foreign nations. Although this wall is well underway, it has to be put on pause because we have to start rebuilding the family in this passage. That's what Nehemiah's task is. And what it's going to require from each other is granting freedom, restoring unity. This is the biggest work that happens in the story of Nehemiah. Two weeks ago, I told you that building the wall was just a small piece of what God wanted to do in Israel, and we're going to see the start of the larger work here, the true rebuilding, the rebuilding of a family, a family that decides to take care of each other. Here's how we know that this is the goal of the book of Nehemiah. Less than half of this book has to do with rebuilding the wall. The majority of it is the restoration of the people, a restoration story that begins here in Nehemiah chapter 5 in the text that Barney read for us. From a chronological standpoint, remember that we learned in Nehemiah 1-2 that Nehemiah prayed for about four months. And according to Nehemiah 5.14, just after this passage, Nehemiah stays the governor of this province to be with the people for 12 years. But according to Nehemiah 6.15, building the wall only took 52 days. Less than two months. Four months praying, two months building a wall, 12 years restoring a people. So what was the purpose of the wall? 
to show the supernatural power of God and that the good hand of the Lord was upon them. Building a wall of that scale and that size and that length while having to defend yourself from enemies with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other in just 52 days should not be able to happen. The way in which this wall comes together is nothing short of miraculous, and it's a precursor of the miraculous work that God wants to do in the midst of these people who may feel like they have a hopeless circumstance. For the real work to take place, a supernatural work is going to have to take place in the hearts of the influencers to make things right, to take care of the family, and it's going to take being debt cancelers. This is work that can only be done when God is radically involved, and that is the type of supernatural work that is going to have to take place to rectify what we see emerging in Nehemiah chapter 5, a family that is going to be restored. In Nehemiah 5, the influencers, they're out for themselves. They're taking care of number one, and they are in the best position to do this. Those who should be the most spiritually mature are looking out for themselves when they should be looking out for the needs of the people, and instead they're exploiting the people to get what they desire the most. On the surface, the problem is practical and it's legal. They're breaking Jewish law by doing this. But something else has to happen here, and you see this emerge. You see, breakdowns happen in our families when we start creating debts because God is forgotten. On a practical level, the influencers have violated two Levitical laws. But there's something spiritual that's at the core of it. So what are the two practical laws that the influencers are violating? If you were to look back at Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 43, two things are forbidden in that passage. Exacting interest from a brother... And selling a brother into slavery. The two things that you see the influencers doing in Nehemiah 5. Nehemiah points out the legal error according to the law. And he tells them, you have done something that is of genocidal proportions. And they cannot answer him a word according to the text. They are as guilty as guilty can be. But notice the first thing Nehemiah does in answering the problem. He doesn't go to the law. He doesn't go to Leviticus 25. In, in essence, he goes to something even deeper from Leviticus 25. In Nehemiah 5.9, Nehemiah doesn't start with the practical and legal. He starts with the spiritual. He says this, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the ta- taunts of the nations and our enemies. The implication here is that the influencers are not walking in the fear of God. They have forgotten God, and this is at the heart of how they have fallen into this position of hurting the rest of their community. Well, this shouldn't be a surprise that this would be the starting point, because in Leviticus 25, Moses says, as a preventative measure for this kind of thing, in fact, that the fear of God is how you prevent it. In, Mo- in Leviticus 25, 36, and 43, Moses says, Don't exact interest from your brother, but fear your God. Don't deal ruthlessly with your brother, but fear your God. 
the influencers forgot their fear of God, and because of that, they were exploiting their people to the nations around them. One commentator put it this way, the, this colossal failure to reflect the Lord's compassion in their own community in the world strikes at the very core of Israel's missional purpose for following God's gracious law. The way that they dealt with people internally was a message to the rest of the world. And this is something that had to be rooted out. It had to be taken care of. It took acts of repentance and restoration on the part of the influencers, and it was also going to take acceptance on the part of those being restored with no contingencies. That's what it was going to take, and that's how God's people are restored. Families are restored when debts are canceled in the community. Nehemiah's response is to bring all of the people together in one great assembly. We've got a problem. It's not an isolated problem. It's not an individual problem. It's a family problem that is hindering us from being the people that God intends for us to be. So Nehemiah says we are not going to sit in the shadows. We're not going to have this conversation over here. We're not going to have this conversation over here. We're going to bring everybody together and we're going to bring it out into the open. Why does Nehemiah make this a matter of public rebuke and correction? Because the entire community is affected by this. If you were to look at the progression of what happens in this passage, look at the trickle-down effect. The influencers who should have been leading spiritually are the source of this problem because of their lack of fear of God. They have debts on their people. Now that trickles down to those who have food during the famine. Now they're hoarding it and not sharing it. And that trickles down even further to those who are most vulnerable, who are ready to do the work of the God-shaped vision that has been put on Nehemiah's heart, and they are hurting the most as a result of it. According to Nehemiah, the only resolution is repentance and restoration. Taking care of the family matters that much. This had to be made right according to the law, but Nehemiah challenges to them to go even above the law to go to restoration, to cancel their debts with the family. Look at what he says in Nehemiah 5.11. He says, Return to them this day, very day, their fields, their vineyards, their orchards, and their houses, and their percentage of grain and wine and oil that they have been exacting from them. The nobility is challenged by Nehemiah not just to stop exacting interest, but to return what they had been collecting, which, by the way, according to the law, they had a rightful claim to until the year of Jubilee. He was telling them to suffer loss, to cancel debt, to restore the people for the sake of the family. This is the rebuilding in Israel that had to take place, and the influencers responded to Nehemiah's leadership. They broke the chains of disunity by canceling the debts, and the people were restored. They did what they had promised when they were challenged with it. But the debt canceling was also reciprocated by the people. Remember, this was a great outcry against the nobility. There is anger, there is hurt, there is resentment, but upon the response of the nobles of repentance and restoration, notice the response of the people to the nobility the influencers in Nehemiah 5, 13. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. They affirmed with an amen what needed to happen. And they said, we've received that. 
And as a result, this people are starting to be rebuilt. Debts are starting to be canceled, rooted in the fear of the Lord. And that is how God's people have always been intended to be restored. That's not just for then. You see, friends, this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ does for us in the gospel. Both parties in our passage this morning, the people and the influencers in Nehemiah, have the opportunity to be a type of Jesus here. Friends, humanity owes a debt to God that we have no way of repaying. Sin creates a transaction between us and God that results in death and an eternity eternity separated from him. But Jesus, the Son of God, to whom the debt is owed, becomes a debt canceller on the cross because his family matters that much. Paul puts it this way. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. In order to do what was best for restoring his family, Jesus became a debt canceller. By his death on the cross. That's the vision for God's church. A people of debt cancelers. For the sake of restoring and rebuilding the family of God. A family that is still growing today. With people waiting to have their debts cancelled. As we share the love of Jesus Christ with them. I believe it's why Jesus teaches foundationally. When he teaches us to pray. Forgive us our debts. As we have forgiven our debtors. And moving this back into the story of Nehemiah, this is the first stop in restoring the people in Jerusalem, selflessly canceling the debts of their own people as a witness of the fear of the Lord to the nations. Friends, the true family of God cancels debts. If we're going to be the church that God intends for us to be, We need to be spiritually debt-free, which means we need to be debt cancelers. What does that look like in the church today? What kind of debts do we hold over people? Anything that you hold over another person, bitterness, an offense, legitimate or not, selfishness, power struggles, a debt being held over people's head, and just like in this passage This doesn't just affect you and the person that you've indebted. It affects the entire family. Is there a debt in a personal relationship that you need to cancel? Is there a debt note that you've been holding on to of bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment that you've been collecting interest on? You said you forgave it, but you're still collecting interest. If we claim the name of Jesus and we are making the claim of holy reverence to the Lord that as a people that have been restored by a great debt canceller, we need to be those who cancel debts as well. Some of you have been holding on to debt notes and collecting interest, and it's time to do something different. It's time to make a change. If you're holding debts, it's hindering us as a church. Some of you have broken relationships within this family of God that are racking up interest on the ledger of your heart. And I'm telling you today, it's time to cancel the debt. Until we can move from this 
Until we can be debt cancelers, we will never be the church that God intends for us to be. To harbor debts against our brothers is to say that there is a sin too great that Jesus couldn't die for. And I know that you don't want to say that. Author Ken Sandy wrote in one of his books on peacemaking, uh, unforgiveness is the poison that we drink, but we hope our enemies will die. Well, he's only partially right. From a biblical perspective, when we have unforgiveness and bitterness in our midst, it's the poison that we drink on behalf of the entire body. Your leaders can come up with catchy ways of articulating a vision. Know, grow, and go. It sounds good in principle. It'll look good on a t-shirt. But it doesn't mean anything if we're going to be holding debts against each other. If we hold debts against our brothers, we either don't know Jesus Christ or we have forgotten how much he has forgiven us. And we need to communicate something different in the church and to the world. That we are going to be a church that cancels debt because the family matters that much. So what debt can't be canceled? A few years ago, something very traumatic happened within this church. Staffing issues, animosity, scandal, those sorts of things. Many of you have gotten over that. Many of you have canceled the debt. Some of you haven't. And it's time to cancel the debt. It's time to cancel the debt because the family matters that much. And I'm not afraid to share that here in this great assembly. Because the family matters that much. You may be thinking, there's visitors here. Why are you airing the family's dirty laundry in front of the community? Because if anything... If you're visiting here today, I want you to know that we are a real church, a real family with real problems, and we're a church that's going to deal with our stuff. And we're not going to be afraid to do it. Some are holding debts over my head as a new pastor. Friends, I can't be everything that everybody wants me to be as a pastor in this church. Pastor Verlin can't be everything that you want him to be as a pastor in this church. And because of that, debts are being racked up. I'm appealing to you. Cancel the debt, please. Some of you have interpersonal relationships that are broken right now, that are wounded. You've been holding a debt of unforgiveness and, and bitterness. It's hindering you from being what God wants you to be. I'm telling you to cancel the debt. Insofar as God has given me authority, according to Hebrews 13, 17, as one who keeps watch over your soul, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, cancel the debt. Whatever it is, cancel it. And if you're here today as someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you're just being introduced to Jesus Christ, Jesus is the great debt canceler. He is the one who died for every debt that you have with God. You have been cut off from God, and God wants to restore you. And today can be the day that you see that. Can, what debt can't be canceled? Can that offense that we're holding on to from three years ago in this church, can that not be canceled? The offenses that are against me, 
are those debts that can't be canceled? The offenses that you have against God, are those ones that can't be canceled? If so, then nothing we see in the Gospels is true. But practically, how do we live it out? I want to show you a video clip. This video clip is very close to home for me. Uh, This is uh, a video with a woman named Lori Coombs, and I know Lori well because I did ministry with her in northern Nevada for a number of years. And the story that she's going to tell you actually happened in the church that where Catalina and I were saved. And so I want you to watch this video in light of whatever debts that you might be holding on to that you think you can't cancel. Uh, Doug, go ahead and turn the slider up, and Taya, go ahead and play the video. Lori Coombs' father was murdered when she was just 20 years old, a deliberate, senseless act of violence that changed her life forever. But amid the sadness, anguish, and even depression, she chose to do something most would never consider. Her story of forgiveness in tonight's Someone to Know. He, he just was such an amazing man. I was absolutely a daddy's girl, absolutely a daddy's girl. I just adored my dad. We had planned to leave the next morning and all of a sudden I just got this feeling. All that I knew was that I needed to be home. But when she got there, Lori Coombs learned her father had been killed in his Carson City home. It didn't make sense to me. Her beloved dad, Rick Albrecht, was an avid hunter, fisherman, and known for his big bear hugs. But Rick's relationship with a woman going through a divorce was motivation for her estranged husband to murder. Evil really became real to me for the first time. In 2003, Anthony Eccles went to trial. Anytime I would even see his mugshot or his picture in the newspaper even, it would just send chills up my spine. Although sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I felt like he stole something from me, you know, and and not just me, but my, my entire family. Tomatoes, I think, were here last year. Yeah. 15 years later, Lori's now married. There you go. Thank you. These are sweet peas. And sowing seeds into their children's lives. Two beautiful girls blooming before her eyes. And while she too has grown since losing her dad, it didn't come without anger and bitterness. So I prayed and God, I felt God tell me that I needed to forgive. So she reached out to Anthony with a letter peppered with questions. And to her surprise, he wrote back. I just looked at it, and honestly, I didn't even want to touch it. I mean, this was something that he had touched. This was something that, these were his thoughts on the paper. And I, I ugh, just the thought of it was just terrible, absolutely terrible. But she wanted answers. Dear Lori, well, I guess this is the letter you've been waiting a year for. I wish we could do this face to face. When you're that angry, you don't realize the damage you're going to do. Serving a sentence at the Northern Nevada Correctional Center, which not only declined our request for an on-camera interview, but also Lori's petition to meet Anthony. So they resorted to the written word and exchanged dozens of letters. But then it got extremely heated. For a while there, it got really intense. I received this one letter in particular where he was blame shifting, saying, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. It's not my fault. Infuriated, but rather than rebuking, Lori says she prayed again and again felt called to forgive. I wrote, um, I rewrote, I revised my letter and, and I told him we may never see eye to eye, but I do want you to know that I forgive you. That's when she noticed a rapid transformation. This is the truth. I did this. Um, this was no accident. 
uh, and something I'm very sorry for. And he now shares with everyone how Lori's forgiveness changed his life. It was like a giant um, rock was lifted off my back. He adds in another letter, their testimony is resonating behind bars. Men plotting to seek revenge are now seeking forgiveness. And she wrote back. While I would never have hoped for, wanted, wished for any of this, all that happened between you and my dad, I do see God using it for good. Not just in our lives, but in the lives around us. Just because he's in prison does not mean that he has wasted his life. Two people living worlds apart, one tragic event bringing them together on a path of pain and redemption, but ultimately on a journey of forgiveness. So what debt can't you cancel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can be real. I thank you that your word speaks. Your word cuts. Sometimes we do say amen and sometimes we do say ouch. God, you know how hard this message was for me to preach. I'm thankful for those who have committed to praying during this service as I preach this sermon. And we've been building something here. And it didn't start when I got here a year ago. It's something that started in this church 44 years ago when it was formed. With faithful saints who are committed to the work, who have strengthened their hands for the work. But from then till now, Father, we also recognize that there's been smoke and there's been fire. And we need to be a people who, like in this case that we see in, the, in your word today, a people who hear that the debts that they have accumulated the interest that has been charged on people's hearts that in order for us to be what God intends for us to be, we've got to be debt cancelers. We've got to be debt cancelers because you are a debt canceler. And Father, I pray that until those debts are canceled and until we can move forward, God, we'll put a pause on whatever work it is that you've called us to be and do for the sake of restoring your family so that it can have the right reflection of mission in the world. So Father, be with us as we consider this, as we commit our hearts to this. Father, draw us near to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.